Hello and welcome to Tardigrade Talks. I'm your host, Dr. Jody Samra, and this is a podcast for anyone interested in cultivating greater psychological health, wellness, and resilience. Today, I am very excited to introduce you to our guest, Johnny Staub. Johnny is a well-known media personality and co-host of the 94.5 Virgin Radio Morning Show. He is also the first person to come out on air doing their own show in a major market commercial radio station. Johnny is a passionate advocate for mental health awareness and uses his position in the media to educate about the importance of taking care of mental health. We'll be talking about the good, bad, and ugly of coming out as a gay man in the world of media, the powerful role of therapy in maintaining good mental health, and ways our workplaces can be supportive of LGBTQ employees. Johnny, a great big warm welcome and hello. Hi there. It's so good to talk to you. I feel like I've, I mean, you've been a part of my life for so long, but we've, we've never done anything like this. So I'm really excited. Oh, we, we have so much to talk about. <laughs> I thought the task <laughs> today is going to be to uh, stay on task and not go for hours. Cause I know, I already know we could talk for hours and hours and, and really um, what I want to do is kind of um, start by diving kind of right into a big part of your identity. And as, as all of your show listeners will know, you're a gay man. Mm-hmm. And your sexuality has been something that you've been very open about through your role in media. Uh, but this wasn't always the case. Um, you came out in your personal life at the age of 14, uh, the daily life at 21, and came out on air in July 2007. And so let's start by talking about your journey and relationship with your sexuality, Johnny, starting from when you were a preteen. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people who are gay are always asked the question, like, when did you know? And, you know, there's some people that find out later in life. There's some earlier. I know for me, I definitely felt very much so early on that I was different. I didn't really understand what it was, but I certainly didn't feel like a lot of the boys that I hung out with. And over time as an adolescent and a preteen, I kind of understood what that was, but I went to Catholic school. And so for I think a lot of us that that go to a school that uh, is surrounded with a lot of religion, uh, and if you are gay, hopefully it's getting better. But for us, you definitely felt outcasted. You felt secretive. You had to hide it. Um, some did it better than others. I don't think I did as good of a job, but um, it, it definitely started to chart out a bit more of what I would say is a challenging life than maybe the average person. So leading into my teen years, you know, as, as teenagers are, they're, they're learning, growing, exploring. Um, it actually, I feel like a lot of gay teens around my age probably feel like we had to wait to become ourselves a bit later in life because living closeted and not having resources around you, maybe unlike today's teenagers, it definitely made for uh, uh, almost like a later progression of your own identity and sexuality versus maybe somebody today. That's a, I really like how you you describe that, Johnny, the, the waiting to become ourselves. Um, that captures a lot, actually, as, as you're 
uh, you know, as I'm hearing you say those words and say, say a little bit more of what um, that kind of looked like for you. Well, you know, I, you know, when a whole bunch of your friends are dating and you would rather date a male, but that's not really the norm and you'd probably get ridiculed for it. Or uh, maybe you don't even know any other gay people or the gay people that are out or maybe uh, a different caliber of flamboyance or something different that doesn't really match with you. And you're like, actually, I don't even want to get identified with them because maybe they get bullied more. So it becomes this really interesting time in your life where you're growing and you're learning about yourself. Like I dated a girl when I was 17. I really liked her as a friend. She liked me more than that. And I was on board with it. She's lovely, but I only did it because I felt that's what I had to do. And it also stopped people from kind of making fun of me. So it's almost, they call that a beard. I don't know if you've heard that term before. I have, yes. Probably, <laughs> probably from you, actually. <laughs> so I definitely had a beard uh, for a little bit. But I, I mean, the thing is, I think people do. I don't think it was that big of a secret, but you're so uncomfortable in your own skin in general, you know, when you're younger. I don't know anyone that escapes childhood without trauma. So it's just like, it's, it's, it feels like added trauma as you enter into your adult phase, but you haven't really dated in your teenage years. So your twenties, you're playing catch up and it can make for um, a bit of a, a wobble for those first 20 years of your life. Cause you, you haven't really had as straight of a line, <laughs> get it straight, but you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Good yeah, you, you, yeah. That trajectory is just, it's a bit more of a wobble if you look at it like a line. And so um, it, it, it just, I don't know if for me, like I felt like very delayed sexually and romantically until I got into my twenties. Mm. And, and what did that, when you think about, you know, now in, in hindsight, of course, always 2020, isn't it? <laughs> and, and, yeah. and relationships are a challenge in the best of times. As I often say, I don't, I don't care what gets you in the therapy door. It is ultimately relational stuff that keeps us in the therapy room. Right. And, and whether, absolutely. Yeah. Whether it's our relationship with our sexuality or our parents or a partner or the lack of a partner or our coworkers, right. Our, our relational pieces get so impacted. Um, and of course, for, you know, most of us kind of those teen and then early adult years are the most tumultuous when it comes <laughs> to relationships. And so, yeah, tell me about the impact that this kind of extra layer of um, sexuality kind of added to the complexity of relationships. Yeah, I, you know, there, there's always been a bit of a, I don't know if it's a truth, a myth, or somewhere in between that, you know, like gay men, they're so promiscuous. Well, first of all, men and women are so identical in so many ways, but we are different in other ways. And if you're a man and you have, you know, a sex drive and you have another man, there's a sex drive and you've been limited to how much you've been able to do that uh, earlier in life, there might be a bit more of catch up time. And for me, I certainly, I was, I waited a very long time until I lost my virginity. I think it was 20 or 21. Um, wow. There's also, yeah, 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 I was a late bloomer. Um, there was also, I think a couple of different pieces when it comes to, um, you know, delayed sexuality in that, you know, not that you really get practice, but you're again, you're kind of playing catch up and you're also still dealing with a lot of shame. And I think the shame factor, along with all the childhood trauma that we we come forth with uh, later in life, it, it's such a weird 
time where you're trying to become yourself, but there's all these, it feels like these roadblocks and then the sexual roadblocks. So uh, I, you know, I'll be honest, I didn't really feel like super comfortable in my own skin until I was in my thirties, I would say, like leading up to that point in my life, that's where I would say it was, it was a lot to unpack. more about the shame element, Johnny. And, um, you know, of course, I love that you love Brene Brown, <laughs> who I also love. And, and uh, you know, as our listeners would know, shame and vulnerability is a, a core part of the, the work um, that she does. Um, and we know that, my goodness, I mean, shame has such insidious impacts on our esteem and our confidence and our you know emotional wellness and and so talk about kind of what your relationship with shame has looked like johnny kind of over the years yeah shame is uh i'm glad it's it's a uh, i'm so glad that this word and um the background of it is getting more of a highlight in today's world because shame just really if you keep it in the dark you can't get rid of it you have to put it out there in order to expel it at least according to yourself and Brene Brown. So thank um, you for putting us in the same category. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, it's true. And, you know, for a lot of us who start off knowing that you're different, and especially as I, as I mentioned before, uh, growing up and going to Catholic schools, I, I graduated high school and Catholic high school. So my entire existence went that way and hearing that that is wrong. And that's, and, you know, I don't think they were as dramatic as you might hear in some stories, but you always knew that it was like frowned upon. We don't talk about it. The military was don't ask, don't tell. All these things were happening at that time in my life. And so I knew that this is not something I could reveal about myself. I was going to have to pack it away. Uh, I would have to figure out how to date a girl. Um, I used to have, <laughs> this is so great. I used to have posters up in my bedroom of guys but then when people were coming over, I took them down. Mm. Uh, and I and I remember one time a friend showed up early and I wasn't home and I was so panicked because I was like, I forgot to take down all my posters. Mm. Um, that's shame, right? There's also the element of, of hiding. Like you end up becoming, and I've found this so often with so many gay men, and I hope this doesn't sound too too rude, but I think we became these master manipulators because of all the lies we had to do. Mm. And it is a trend that I've seen in a lot of people. Hopefully people don't utilize it as often, but we be, you become really good at trying to sidestep, omit, lie, um, you know, pull a turnaround on other people, uh, gaslight, whatever the case is. I think we develop these skills because it's survival for us. And the outcome, though, is that we become really good at that. So maybe that's why sometimes maybe a gay man might be good in sales. I don't know. Maybe it's just a guess here. But um, or or in a way that you have to be like, oh, you have you thought about this? And would you like to try that? And just because we've learned our way on how to navigate through a lot of lies because of shame. Mm. And I've I've um, I've often found that a really, really um, interesting part of the gay man's journey is the shame and the lies and how it uh, how it manifests later in life. That persona or mask that you're wearing, right? And, and as you said, that kind of 
waiting to become yourself. I mean, my goodness, how do you do it when every, and maybe not every, but many signs around you or messages implicit or explicit, right? Whether it's the beliefs of the church that, you know, we attended as children or whether it's the, you know, offside comments that we hear a buddy make at a bar, right? Like these things all impact the way we think other people think about us. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, I, I will say, you know, growing up, I heard a lot of the uh, of the words and the terms thrown around, whether they were towards me or in a room with me and you would cringe. Um, there is such a hyper-masculinity factor to people my own age I think it still exists. I think it's getting better with the queer movement, but certainly my age and those before me where hyper-masculinity was so celebrated. And as someone that is just a bit more artistic, I was like, damn it, I got the wrong cards. Like at least if I'm gay, but I can play baseball, there might be a chance of me getting through this a little bit easier. But being somebody that will do better in drama club versus a soccer field or a football field, I'm, I'm kind of screwed in a little bit way. You know what I mean? Um, because I'm not demonstrating that powerful masculine um, vibe that might get you a little bit of a pass. Um, you know, in trans world, they talk about passing, right? Like if you can pass as, as the transition that you now are, uh, you're ahead of the game for so many trans people. I feel like in gay world, especially for me growing up, that's all I wanted. I'm like, I just really want to pass. I don't want anyone to like, no pick out in the lineup like that's the gay guy mm. well that you know and as you're speaking johnny i'm thinking of the the fundamental fundamental human need that we all have to belong yeah right and and when do we belong we belong when like is like right more than differences um are salient and so we want to become chameleons and meld in and not have things that you know it's like here's this one attribute or characteristic that already differentiates you and then this other layer of wishing, hoping, wanting other differential identifiers to be different as well. Yeah, you you definitely want this. Um, <laughs> it's so funny that later in life, you're like, I just want to be me and original and original is beautiful. But you don't know that you don't even have a clue of how awesome that is when you're younger, because you're right. All you want to do is fit in and belong and chameleon. And I, I think I did a pretty good job, but I certainly, I was a bit of a weirdo too. So <laughs> in what way? So, um, I don't know. You know, um, I could, I could, I, I was able to like pick up people's voices. So I would be able to like make a weird voice in class. Um, uh, I don't, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I just wasn't the most typical. Like I, I feel like my parents probably could have put me on ADHD medicine. Um, just because I was so hyperactive and slightly whimsical. And again, like I said, I could, I could manipulate someone's voice and make it sound like their, their cadence of speaking. So, and that was, it was just kind of natural to me. I was kind of all over the place growing up. And I, and I, all I wished was like, I just wanted to be like this, this fit football kid that was good at school. That's all I wanted to be. And I was so far from it. What were the hardest times in, in your journey, Johnny? And, and, you know, some of the darkest times when you 
look at the kind of cumulative impact that all of these factors had on you? Well, uh, when I was in grade nine, I seriously, I was very close to committing suicide. So I would have been around 13, I believe, 13 years old. Um, You know, I think you just get sometimes to a point, and I'm sure there's lots of people listening right now that can understand you get to a point where you're just like so overwhelmed, you don't know what to do. There's something wrong with you, quote unquote. And I think that was probably a really, really dark time in my life. My parents were getting a divorce at the time. Um, I was just, I was just not able to function and handle everything going on. And so I I had a whole bunch of pills lined up. I didn't take them. I had a girlfriend call me funny enough right around the time as I'm contemplating. And she kind of stopped me from doing that. And I'm forever grateful and who knows what would have happened, but you know, it definitely felt like I got to that point in my life at one point of, of really considering suicide. Um, and I, uh, you know, you and I, we work together. Uh, you know, you are my psychologist. And as we keep unpacking over the last like nine, 10 years, I'm sure there's something that happened in my youth or some type of childhood trauma that has caused me to always be a bit of a people pleaser, um, somebody that is striving for love, to be loved, probably doesn't believe it in himself as much as he should or know his self-worth as much as I know I should. It's getting better, but it's not quite there all the time. So when that is always strapped to your back, I think any kind of situation you enter into, you know, it's it's already starting off heavy because you have to keep reminding yourself, I'm worth it. I'm worthy. People will like me if I'm just being me. Not everyone has to like me. Um, and so I don't know if that's the gay factor or if that's something else, but, but certainly those, that's been a really, really big, um, thing for me that can, that can lead to dark times. What things helped you over the years? Um, and you know, people, relationships, when you think about what helped foster that sense, um, of growing confidence in yourself and who you were and, and living an authentic life that was true to every part of you. Yeah. You know, I, the blessing, you want to talk about blessings and people that have gotten you further along your journey. Uh, first and foremost, you have to do it yourself. You, you're going to have a lot of support along the way. Hopefully you will, but the need has to be there from you because you yourself, it's kind of like in the Wizard of Oz where Glenda's like, you, you wouldn't have believed me. You've always had the power, but you've had to experience all these things. So for me, I've always thought this is my journey. It's my responsibility. So I start off with that. However, I've got a great family, like loving, supportive, amazing, kind family, extended family. I have a great group of friends, um, people that know me, love me. I mean, when I found out I was getting, uh, when I, I was getting separated and, and divorced, um, a whole bunch of people came over and they brought me like my favorite magazines and candy. Like they knew, they mm. knew me, you know, like that's the kind of stuff where you go, wow, like you pay attention and you know me. Um, and then also like coolers and wine, because we're going to have to spend the night together and figure out what's going on. Uh, other factors in moderation, like, of course, no. <laughs> in moderation, in it's moderation. like the only time. Yeah. I got like severely drunk that night and it's very rare that ever happens, especially on a weeknight. Um, Fitness is a huge one, I would say, Dr. Jody. Um, movement, nature, 
um, being at one with yourself in nature, I always find really, really beautiful spending time with my dogs, all those things I would say are contributing factors to a positive outcome when you're going through a really, really hard time. Mm-hmm. Oh, and can I say one more thing? Of course. Counseling. Therapy, yes, therapy works. The therapy, I'm telling you, you and I have have worked together for almost 10 years. I have missed two appointments in 10 years. I am that committed. And I think if you put that commitment towards like dieting, health, wellness, whatever the case is, like I will move hell and high waters to always make sure I hit my therapy appointments because it is instrumental to the outcome. of this journey. It is, I fully, fully believe that. And and you have to find the person that works well with you. I'm so glad you and I work well together, but you have to find the right match that really understands you and can help you. about about therapy because you're such a strong advocate of therapy we of course met uh, 10 years ago as you've mentioned when i was a a guest on your show for funny how tables turn over the years and uh so so when i was a guest on your show for bell let's talk national anti-stigma campaign for mental health which of course you're involved in i've been a volunteer for since inception um and uh you know since then i've been having the honor of being your psychologist uh, for the in case anyone from the college of psychologists is listening uh, you've been very open on air about being in therapy and more broadly yes. of course met in this you know kind of unique situation in a, in a media setting first and i remember you reached out it was after bell let's talk and so and so share with our listeners about when you first made that decision to reach out for therapy you know in, in high school i did a little bit of therapy um i was in a relationship where we went to a relationship counselor when I was around 25. Um, And then it it had been a couple of years and I could see just like life was starting to get, as I like to say, like the the tail was starting to wag the dog, not the other way around. So for me, that's where I was noticing like "Mm, something's off. I was in a, a different relationship at that time. Um, I had a new job and I was like, I'm just feeling like there, like something's not working uh, in my life for myself. And so when you came on to be a guest on our show, uh, I just really felt connected when you and I were, were just chatting on the radio about mental health. And I emailed my producer immediately and said, like, I need to get in touch with her. I don't know if she's seeing any clients, but I, I, I need to talk to this woman. And luckily you were, you know, you had availability to see me. And that's how our journey started. How has therapy helped you? Well, um, and I think I can say this, right? I don't think there's anything wrong. I would say to you all the time, uh, Dr. Jody, I feel like, Inside my head is a hamster wheel and there's a hamster spinning. It's constantly go, 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 go. It's worried. It is anxious. Um, I never feel peace. It just feels like constant. I always feel constant, constant, constant. And as soon as a thought would come into my head, it would spread like a virus and just go into multiple areas. And I, I couldn't navigate. So for me, therapy allowed me to get more centered, more grounded, it taught me about certain triggers to recognize them and to recognize, oh, when I'm feeling this, it's probably going to start to go here. So let me catch it before we get down the hill. Let me catch it towards the top of the hill. I know how to redirect this and figure 
a better way out of this versus spinning and spiraling. So that's probably, I would say, the biggest help that I've had with therapy. What do you think's the hardest part about therapy? I think for some, it's the commitment. I think for some, it's the cost if you don't have uh, coverage. Um, I think for others, we've talked about shame on this episode. Um, some people are just so stuck in their own shame. Some people are a little bit bullheaded and think like, I can figure this out. Like, I, I'm I can figure out anything. I got this. I got me. And I think it's about becoming so vulnerable and open with yourself and knowing that by asking for help, you're not weak. And I think for some people, they find that first step a sign of their weakness or their armor it has a hole in it when really this is going to sew up the proper armor and take off the heaviness of the armor and allow you to be who you are. Why do you think it's so hard for so many to reach out for therapy? Because of course, through our kind of respective work with with Bell Let's Talk, we know that stigma and in particular self-stigma is actually the biggest barrier, right? So not the not the attitudes we think other people have about mental health, but our own um, perceptions that we have of what that means about who we are or who we're not or what attributes we possess or don't possess. Um, and so when you think about that kind of self-stigma, uh, we know that's the biggest barrier to help-seeking behavior. Um, and so that the vast majority of people actually don't even think about starting any kind of process with anybody. Yeah, I, I guess it's just like a diet too, or like a, a fitness regime where you go, I am so big right now, I have to make a change. Uh, some people need like a breaking point. Um, the other thing too, I don't, I, you know, I think it's getting better, but perhaps therapy hasn't been as sexy. I think some people think you're going to lie down on a couch and somebody might give you some pills or something. I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think social media, um, exemplifies a whole bunch of influencers or people that are like, uh, you know, on my way to counseling today. Uh, so it might just be also the language, not being equipped with the language of understanding how to reach out. Um, I think some of those factors might be a part of it, but for us, I mean, when you and I have therapy sessions, often I'm like, let me take a photo. I want to throw it up on there. It's not to brag. It's actually, I just want to be like, Hey, everybody needs what they need. This is what I need. If you're like me, you're good. Like, it's okay. We got this. We got this. So I think we need more and more people just showcasing that, like, do whatever you need to do. This is what works for me. And if you ever need, you know, support. And and by the way, I get a lot of people that email and, and DM me about like, where do you go for therapy or what should I do? And I often say, I'm not a psychologist. I Here are some resources. I keep links on my phone and notes, but um, I don't know if enough people do that. And I think that can be a big obstacle for, for people not seeking out or not feeling like they want to go get therapy. Yeah, I think, you know, you're absolutely right. And of course, in, you know, in different ways, we both work in media. And, and if we think about um, the powerful role that those in media can have. And, and so, you know, thank you to you for being such a strong advocate, because I agree, I've been I've been practicing now for almost 20 years. Um, and my goodness, when I think about where we're at now versus 20 years ago, or even 
30 years ago when I started my training, I mean, way more open about mental health yet. Um, you know, it's it has got a long way to go. I mean, my goodness, we, you know, we break our leg, we, um, you know, have some health issue, we post it on the gram, we put it on social media, we share what we're doing. And we certainly generally do not do that when it comes to things like when we're dealing with depression or anxiety or panic attacks or substance misuse, Stewie. Yeah. And that's actually something, you know, when you say a broken leg or a broken arm, that's something physical. People can see an injury. They can see a wound. There is a, oh my gosh, are you okay? Um, when it's not something physical that you can see, but it's internal and it's such a conflict. Sometimes people don't know what to say or that because they can't see it, they just don't either believe it or they don't know, they don't recognize it. And, um, you know, I feel so, so badly for my brothers and sisters that do struggle silently because it is, it's enough to have to do the struggle to begin with, but to do it so silently would just be so awful. And that's why I always implore people like, please reach out. I'm like, you're, you're not a failure. You're not a disaster. You've got this. You, you just need some help. You just need help. And that's okay. about, you know, when you've gone through your most challenging times, um, the things that people did around you that were helpful and unhelpful. Um, what was most supportive, the questions people ask or the approaches they take? Um, and what did you find most unhelpful? Yeah, you know, there's some I think it's Brene Brown that says this too, where she says, not everyone deserves to hear your story. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there, there's often times where something will happen in your life and, and you'll get a plethora of messages and you're kind of like, how do I get back to all these people? And I don't even know if I want to talk to these people about this. Um, I'm, I'm very blessed to have a, a, a large network of friends and family and colleagues that um, for me, the way that I feel the most supported is when people say like, I'm here, they don't put, put too much pressure on me. I certainly know the people that I can reach out to more that deserve to hear my story. And also the other big thing too, not everyone can handle your story, right? You mm -hmm. might have a family member that you're like, I wanna to talk to you about this. And they have no clue how to take on that luggage that you're throwing at them. They have, they can't, they might not have the capacity. And so you really like the, the things that have always helped me the most is knowing who A, has the capacity, who B, is deserving, who C, uh, it's always, relationships aren't 50-50, but I know I'd probably do the exact same things back for them. Those are the people that I would seek out. And that I always find the most helpful is identifying those who we can, we can have that. I think longevity and loyalty have always been big to me. If you've been a friend for a year, I might not talk to you about things the same way as a 15-year friendship where they really have seen your journey. Um, and in ways that are unhelpful, yeah, I guess like sometimes nosiness or, um, you know, even for me, um, I've been divorced now for just over a year, but separated divorce about two and a half, three years. Um, I like, I don't necessarily need to rehash a lot of the past I here on the podcast. We can talk about, about whatever, but you know, just day to day or with people I don't even know, I'm just like, you know, it's just not, that's, it doesn't help. 
that's that's not where where I'm at in my life right now. So I think it's maybe sometimes being really nosy or not having the right to your story. I'm like, you need to go. <laughs> Yeah. And I think that being selective is so important, isn't it? And I think that's where often people get shut down, right? They take a little bit of a risk, but perhaps they there hasn't been a full think through of who that person is and, and um, you know, whether they are the one that deserves to hear it. And then when we get shut down or pushed back or, uh, you know, invalidated for what we're experiencing, um, you know, that often makes us just kind of clam up altogether, doesn't it? Yeah. And, you know, it's so interesting with social media now, too. Um, if let's say, you know, she done you wrong and, and now you're sad and you're upset about something and you go online, you post about her, that she betrayed you or she this, this or that. Right. There's almost because you're so hurt and you want you understand it on the outside. You're like, oh, I feel badly for that person. But there's almost this um need in so many of us to have to yell out our stories or put them out there in such a large way and it can reflect poorly on you now even but you're hurt so you want to find a resolution but by doing that it almost can make you look bad so i i always think too like just before you post anything maybe give it an hour or a day before you decide to put (laughs) things out there because once they're out there they're out there right yeah, the things our mothers taught us, right? <laughs> Take a deep breath, count to 10, maybe <laughs> count to 10 again, right? And and um, let's talk about social media because you, of course, are a media personality and you're a gay male in the, in the media personality and all kinds of pressure on all kinds of things, much of it related to appearance and mm-hmm. optics and body and and talk about that, Johnny, and what that experience has been like for you. Yeah, I definitely, you know, I'm one of those people that goes up and down with my weight. I can be super fit at times. Like, ooh, I looked so good 2018, 19. Oh my goodness. I was like, yum. I couldn't even get it up myself. And I say that with a lot of love and obviously <laughs> humor. But um, yeah, and, and I've definitely slowed down. I haven't taken the gym as seriously in the last, it's a year. It's not as important to me. Um, skin wins, obviously on social media. If I post a shirtless picture with my boyfriend, it gets a lot more likes than, you know, a whole bunch of grass in a beautiful field with the sunset. It's uh, frustrating um, for me as someone that has struggled with my own image and body image. It uh, it's, it's an ongoing struggle, but it's less of one. I, I actually stopped using social media as much as I used to because it kind of made me feel bad. It got me wrapped up. I wasn't living in the moment. I was living my life through a screen and having to respond to people just based on my job. Like I always felt like it was very important. If someone said something to me, I'd reach out and say, thank you. And then it just became like an hour of just being on my phone where, you know, I don't have to post all this content. My job does require me to be active on social media. The new normal for radio now is you have to be a social media superstar. To me, I'm like, it, honestly, that's I have no interest in doing that anymore. So for me, I will I can do social media. I'm good with it, but I'm not going to be a social media superstar. That that's not that's not in the cards for me anymore. Emotional wellness, much like our physical health, um, is comprised of 
a series of small, some perhaps even seemingly insignificant actions, which we just take, right? With intention, with awareness. Um, and collectively, when we think about resilience, I mean, you know this, I know this, there's no magic wand that we wave that all of a sudden we're good to go, is we have to make thoughtful decisions um, about those things that that serve us well. Um, and so Johnny, let's talk talk a bit about the, the things for you that fall in that category of kind of day-to-day actions, small actions that collectively enhance your resilience. Uh, Fitness is a big part of your life, and let's start there. Fitness um, can be a walk. Fitness can be, um, you know, maybe doing some bro muscles at the gym or going to my CrossFit gym. It can be doing push-ups at home. It can be like, I'm not a really good runner, but like, you know, a bit of a run jog outside. Um, moment, I, it's more like momentum is always good for me. It's, if I move my body, it moves all the movement from my brain out my limbs, and then I feel like I get rid of it. So that has always been one for me. You know, another one every morning, like my boyfriend, we, we bought a programmable coffee maker. So the night before we get all the grinds and then the water. And I think like, honestly, every morning before my alarm goes, goes off, I hear like the bubbling the percolating of the machine and the aroma and just just that and I know it sounds silly but just remembering like I've got a nice hot cup of coffee coming as soon as my head comes off this pillow like I'm gonna have a nice cup of coffee and then my boyfriend packs into the thermos so that I've got coffee in the morning while I'm at the radio station it's like it's a moment of gratitude and I think gratitude also builds your resilience so um you know whether it's working out whether it's the little things like making sure like oh i've got my coffee in the morning um spending time with my animals um whenever i get a chance to be out in nature especially some type of bubbling creek or movement of water i'm just i feel such a peace and it reminds me of my resilience to move forward and these are all they're not the biggest things either these are small things right but they start to clear out the way for bigger things to come and more resilience in your life. Absolutely. And there's, I mean, first of all, the early, early, early morning wake up that you get for, for you know, that coffee is, is uh, I can imagine it's probably the best thing to, to use uh, as a, as an object uh, for your practice of gratitude in the morning. Um, but they are those small little things, right? And, and you're talking to someone who is, you know, until that coffee maker is filled the night before, because that morning I know, right, things are busy, you're rushing, you're this, and that small little thing that two minutes or three minutes. It's amazing how those small changes actually can just add to a a little more peacefulness in your morning schedule. And, you know, we think about getting out on the wrong side of the bed, right? In the very same way. And and you know this because I'm such a huge fan of us practicing gratitude first thing in the morning, because in the same way that we know what that feels like when we wake up late or the alarm is this or that way, our whole day gets affected. We can, with intention, put our mind toward things that we have gratitude and appreciation for in the morning and not massively change, but at least gently shift the trajectory of our day. Absolutely. And it doesn't have to cost a lot either, right? Like I think sometimes we feel like, oh, in order to be happy, I would require ABCD at a cost of this much. I mean, we've actually saved money buying a coffee maker and that aroma you can't really replicate unless you have a coffee maker. Um, you know, even the night before, I'm, I'm so blessed. I'm with a partner that 
you know, he always makes sure he's like, oh, I made extra dinner because you're going to bring it for breakfast in the morning. I have breakfast for uh, dinner for breakfast in the studio just because <laughs> I find it easier. So just having a little bit of like that preparedness so that in the morning you're not panicked, you're not rushing around, you're not like, what am I supposed to do? And trying to keep quiet while the rest of the house is sleeping. Um, just having a, a really nice peaceful start to the morning and my morning's actually going to start getting uh, i have to get up earlier because we are moving to squamish and i will have to drive into work I, at this point five days a week so i'm gonna have to get up even earlier now and i'm not a morning person which is kind of hilarious with this job so um i'm, I'm gonna have to keep finding like other ways like, like coffee check dinner for breakfast check i'm sure i'll have to find other things ready that will, will make the morning a bit more uh, speedy and happy to get a resilient day going One of the things, um, Johnny, that you should be very proud of is you are the first person that came out on air doing their own show um, in a major market commercial radio station. And that was in 2007. Um, so mm -hmm. talk, talk about that. I mean, that, my goodness, um, you know, doing being the first in anything um, can feel scary and overwhelming, I can imagine. And, and um, but yet also so impactful. Um, so talk about what led up to that and, and what that journey was like for you. Yeah, you know, there was no blueprint. That's the one thing I was always like, I wish somebody could tell me what to do because I no one's done this. Um, it came about this way. When I started in radio at 17, I the first boyfriend I ever had, he and I were chatting. He's like, do you ever think you'd be out on the air? I'm like, absolutely not. I remember on Christmas when I was 17, I was filling in on Christmas Day and one of the older, long-standing um, DJs was leaving as, as I was coming in and last Christmas was playing and he said, I can't believe we're playing these uh, F words. And I was just thought, okay, I'm never going to be out on the air. I'll probably maybe be out in my personal life, but who knows. Fast forward, I had become a manager. I got off the air because I was so tired of just being like, you know, on the air and trying to have to be re, be gay. And then I'd go to a gay club in Edmonton and they'd be like, I always knew you were gay. And I was like, oh Lord, okay. So I thought, okay, I'm in my late 20s. I guess now I'll become a manager. So I'm a manager and I have a desk and I'm off the air and I'm just, and it's, it's not working. And a posting comes up for Vancouver and I love Vancouver. I've worked here twice now in my career, but this is around 27, 20, yeah, 27. And it said, uh, you know, it's a daytime show. It was the hours were great, 10 in the morning till two in the afternoon. I was like, great, love it. Um, I set my audition tape within a day. They called me back. I interviewed. I had the job within three days, made the decision. But I did say during my contract review, I said, here's the deal. I'm not on the radio because I've always had to pretend to be straight. And I know this is crazy, but if you would have me, would you be willing to allow me to be gay? Wow. And they said, let us think about it, which is so funny because I, okay. So they came back a day later and they said, uh, okay, well, what do you mean by gay? I said, well, listen, I'm not going to be the, the grand marshal of the Vancouver pride parade. That's not my goal. <laughs> Although that would be nice. Um, 
I just said, you know, I just want to be more authentic and that will require me to talk about my life. And Vancouver is a big enough city. We can do this. And, you know, we have a vast amount of different people of ethnic backgrounds on Virgin at that point too. It was called The Beat. And my coworker now, Neera, she is Indian. And we had a woman who was Mexican that was kind of spicy and fun on the air. And I just said, listen, why don't we just, why don't we round out that table? So the day I got there, I started training. The first day I got on the air, uh, I didn't know how it was going to happen, but my predecessor, Kid Carson, who was a legendary DJ in the city, um, he was like, hey, hey you want to come on our show? We'll just We can say hello and introduce you. And I said, yes. And as I'm doing this, unbeknownst to me, and it's okay the way it happened, but he was like, and our new guy, he's coming on air and he's got a big secret he's going to reveal. Ah. And I was like, oh, what? I'll have a secret. I was just going to slide it in between the songs. Like, hey, if you and your man are going out for dinner tonight, this is great. Me and my man, even though I was single, me and my man are going to go out <laughs> and listen. Right? Like, I just thought, okay, I'll, I'll ah. gradually. And they, no, he had like Star Wars music and all this, like he's got a big secret and he's about to tell us. And Oh, great. Okay. Well, that's how, so my very first day on the air in Vancouver at this radio station, that's how I came out. And, uh, and that's how we went. My goodness. Um, I mean, first a little bit of an anticlimactic shift there in the story (laughs) (laughs) with the, you know, we're going to get in a minute to like, what to not say to people and revealing a big secret is not the right thing to, to be doing the workplace part of me, right. Would say maybe not how we want to approach this in a workplace. Um, but my goodness, Johnny, as you were describing the way that you asked permission to be yourself, like I felt emotional hearing you, what were all the um, emotions and, and things and thoughts and things that were going through your head as you kind of led up and were having that conversation? Um, I, I just felt for me again, exhausted having to, at that point, I've been on the air for about 10 years and just feeling like I had to keep up this facade and this lie. And I think that held me back from being, you know, I was, I did mornings, like I mentioned, I did a morning show in Edmonton for six months that, that ultimately wasn't successful. I think a big part of that was, you know, my coworker, who's one of my best friends today, Kira, you know, she and I would talk like real people when the microphones were off, but when the microphones were on, she had to always omit or pretend or circumvent topics that would uh, be around me going out with someone or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, as you talk about, it didn't even dawn on me, but asking permission, isn't that a strange thing in 2021, 2022 um, to say, I had to ask permission before I got the job to be myself. Isn't that weird? Isn't that something? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, but leading up to it again, I just I felt like I could be a much better broadcaster if I was a more authentic broadcaster. And I don't know where that came from. I didn't have direction on that. I don't even know what gave me the chutzpah, as we'd say in Jewish culture, to uh, to follow through with that. But I just knew somewhere deep down that if I have to go back behind a microphone, I have to do it as me. And I don't know what that's going to look like, but I bet you it's going to be better than before. And... And it was. I, Absolutely, it's, yes. <laughs> like, it's insane. Like, and, I, and I've always thought this, and I tell people this, we have to, you know, do a guest lecture or, or, or speak to a school or even just with close friends um, going through a, dis, a life-defining decision. I've always, always, always truly believe that if you bet on yourself, truly, truly bet on yourself, not others' opinions of you or, 
you know, the thought of I should be that no, who you are bet on yourself. You'll always win. You'll always win. Hands down, hands down, hands down, hands down. So, you know, I just took a bet on myself. about things that the workplace um, can do that that helps and supports and fosters. Um, and, I, and I want to preface this, that if we take a look at the data, and this is just a few years old, 57% um, of people that would identify as belonging to the LGBTQ plus community would say they're not fully out at work. Uh, 57 oh, wow. Yeah, 57%. Wow. Huh. 22% say they're worried about a hostile work environment. 15% will say they're concerned about losing out on career opportunities. 10% will say they're worried about personal safety. Uh, yeah, Johnny, like that surprises you, this number, as I said, just said that. I'm actually really shocked by that. And not that I think that my company is the best company of all time, but I have never felt that at my workplace. So obviously they must be doing something right in, in that capacity, but these numbers are, they're shocking to me. They're really shocking. Um, and, and, you know, everyone's allowed to live their life. Like some people are very compartmentalized, like work is work, life is life. They don't really intertwine. So I, I respect everyone. If, if that's not where you are, you don't feel comfortable, but the safety aspect and the not, the ability to not really get promoted, like that's really, and is this like Canadian as well? Canadian, yeah, kind of, Canadian data, Canadian? yeah. I should what? also preface that uh, 2016 um, data. Uh, so just a few years, right? Not that dated yet. Um, and I mean, I guess, you know, here's the reality is, is, you know, as a society, I mean, now versus 10 years ago versus 20, certainly versus 40 years ago, you know, I think collectively we have more awareness um, and understanding and more uh, liberal thoughts um, that we did. But the reality is we still, and so, I mean, a whole nother podcast where we think about the massive number of kind of social political movements, issues, right? It's awful tragedies, things that we see in the news over, especially the past year and a half. Um, the reality is we've got a long way to still go. And, and I guess when you think about, you know, your advice to those that are managers and leaders within organizations um, on what helps, um, questions to ask or not ask, approaches to take. And, and again, I don't want to pick on this poor other co-host, but that, you know, Johnny's got a secret. X on that being a bad way to actually reveal someone's <laughs> sexuality in a work environment, right? Um, yeah, I think I think 2007, where you're kind of taught in radio to like tease people, will come back after commercial break, keeping them longer listening. Like I understand 2007 to 2021 is extremely different. I don't think that would happen today. So you know, I, I never want to give harm to that story. For managers though, and for for coworkers. I mean, here's the weird thing. I think I'm a bit of an altruist in that I believe in the goodness of people. I think people will ultimately make the right decisions. The world is love and all those other things. There's a Pollyanna aspect to my my vision and, and world that maybe is out of alignment, but I still believe in a lot of that. My biggest takeaway whenever I think about these things is, uh, you know, the world is evolving. You can choose to evolve with it 
or you can stay in the stone age. Like that's up to you. But if you want to be a compassionate leader, uh, you know, um, an ally, the things you want to do, number one is treat everybody with a ton of respect, regardless of their age, gender, sexuality. Um, empathy is so huge. It, like respect and empathy are our big ones. And I think, you know, just always saying like, my door is open and, you know, I'm here for you. Um, I want to see your career grow as much as you want it to grow. And, um, you know, if there's anything I can help you with or any resources, we've got ABCD or here's the person that works in HR and they're great and stuff like that. Like being an empathetic resource, a cheerleader, a coach, um, and making it a safe space. I always say to people when we're having conversations like this is a safe space. So you do what you need to do when it's locked in the vault and no one has to know about it um, at all. You, you know, this is for you. So I think some of those methods are probably the best. Yeah. And what about questions? Because one of the things, and I've, I've heard this from, you know, many, many people over the years, including clients is people seem to have this um, perception that we can ask questions of someone who is gay. Yeah. We would never ask anybody else. And, and oh, is, okay. so, yeah, tell me about, first of all, the kind of okay. wildest questions that you get. Yes, please. Oh, <laughs> the word, like the number one worst question that you should never ask a gay colleague, especially a male is like, so who's the woman in the relationship? Like that is the most offensive yeah. thing you could say, which by the way, it generally is me because I love to cook. But beyond that, like, I'm always like, really, like, you know what yeah. I mean? Because it's, it's like, it's such a graphic or visual thing for people. And you're like, really? Like, I don't picture you and your spouse, what you guys do. And it's probably way more boring than what I do. Um, so I think you definitely want to shy away from like stereotypes or um, like asking stuff like that is like really, really super offensive. I think if you can see somebody that might be queer, non-binary, um, you know, gay, whatever the case is, I always start with things like, oh, are you seeing anybody? Or like a genuine curiosity without the judgment, right? Like I'm not trying to out you or get, so I think if you come at it with curiosity, um, again, you, you might want to know the language. So if you don't know the language, go to the, the most gentle, kind, basic language. Those would be the way to ask any form of questions, right? Like, uh, oh, it's a long weekend coming up. Do you have any plans? Yeah, we're going to go see my mom. Like, oh, that's awesome. Like, do you, is it you and your partner or like some friends? I think the word partner can be gay or straight, um, you know, and just a genuine curiosity with a lot of love behind it. I think we'll grow a lot of those conversations. A lot of people are having a hard time with they, them. The pronouns, I think, for non-binary people is still a big catch-up for, for others. So uh, one way to get around it, by the way, and I don't, I, maybe I'm wrong, but this is what I've been doing. I say y'all. Um, like y'all coming tonight versus they, are they coming tonight? Or are, right? Like, cause you, it's, so I use y'all a lot with, and I use it for everybody, by the way, like mm-hmm. y'all look good great right like it's not offensive it's kind of fun um and so yeah i would research the language if you don't have it basic loving kind nature and just natural curiosity wonderful yeah wonderful advice and just uh being thoughtful and educated right and i can't underscore the educated and what you said about go go learn and and this is new right for a lot of people and i do believe that 
um, you know, a, a significant segment of the population maybe puts their foot in the mouth, not not because they're bad people or not because they are trying to be hurtful or harmful, but they just don't know, right? And we think of just mm -hmm. ignorance, right? Just a kind of lack of knowledge about something and and easy solutions. So we all go to school. We can figure out how to educate <laughs> ourselves, right? And and for our listeners on our My Workplace Health YouTube channel um, and, and website, we've got about 10 different YouTube videos and um, blogs um, very specific to our work environment. And they're one that we've had some workplaces play within or circulate to, to um, those within their work environment to just educate about language. And, and it's just getting comfortable, right? As you said, Johnny, finding a phrase, right? Something that's collective and inclusive. Um, and all it is, is we just need to slightly modify the words that we use. And it just takes a little bit of practice. And once we start to do it, like you said, you do it for everybody now, right? And that's yeah. kind of the way that you do it. And, and these are things that I think we all have an imperative as, you know, certainly as leaders and managers and supervisors within our organizations, um, but just as even coworkers, right? People that develop friendships and collegiality with those that we work with. And I think, you know, I, I um, think that we need to keep in mind, my goodness, if more than half of any segment of the population cannot be open about that aspect of their identity, my goodness, like how much more, we got a whole bunch of steps to keep on going from an education standpoint. Um, and I guess as you think about um, any um, listener of ours, uh, you know, young or old that may be saying, you know, I haven't fully become myself yet. I haven't let myself reveal every aspect of myself, whatever that attribute is. Um, what, what words of wisdom do you have? Mm. Yeah, you know, there's, there's just such a freedom. And I think, you know, if you've been carrying around this really, really heavy armor to disguise yourself, Brene Brown talks about this all the time, too. But it's like, that armor isn't protecting you, it's shielding you from being who you really are. And, um, and there's such a lightness in that freedom when you start to break down and become the person that you are, you become more vulnerable and showcase who you are. That freedom feels wonderful. It's like a shower after a long weekend at a camping ground. Um, you know, it's just, it's a delight when you can be in the light. And so I implore you, if, if this life for you isn't working the way you thought it was going to go, or you want to make changes, it's just like, it's the everyday grind of stepping out, being more of who you are until you're finally into the light. And it, I still struggle with it sometimes. So I'm not like perfect in my journey either, but I still strive to get into the light because when you're there, ooh, it feels good. Thank you, Johnny, um, and thank you so much for taking the time to share your story uh, with our listeners, and, and thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in. Uh, if you've enjoyed our conversation, I would love for you to subscribe and consider sharing with a friend. We have a breadth of free resources at tardigradetalks.com. Uh, thank you, and I hope you join us again. Wishing you psychological health, wellness, and resilience until next time.